If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support to learn more. This month, Green Dreamer is also sponsored by my favorite tea brand, Arbor Teas, and I'm so grateful for their support during this time. They source loose leaf and organic certified teas. They use backyard compostable packaging, which they've been doing for the past 10 years, by the way. Their operations run on solar energy, and all of their efforts are offset by carbon fund. I myself only bought tea from Arbor Teas this past year. I love supporting them as a small family-owned business, and I also love gifting it to friends and family to support their well-being. To shop Arbor Teas organic teas, just head to arborteas.com. That's A-R-B-O-R-T-E-A-S dot com. The public lands actually account for more than 20%, actually nearly a quarter of the U.S. climate emissions that comes from oil, gas, and coal extracted from public lands. And to say that another way, you know, public lands were their own country, they would rank as the fifth largest source of carbon emissions in the world. That was Melissa Watson, the executive director of the Wilderness Society, which is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to protect the wilderness and inspire Americans to care for our shared wild places. Stay tuned as we're about to explore how much our political climate and leadership actually affect the conservation work of our public lands and wild spaces, how we can turn those public lands, which surprisingly currently contribute a lot to our national carbon emissions, into a key part of the solution to addressing our ecological breakdown and climate change, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. After college, I moved to Washington, D.C., and was 
working for a small nonprofit, actually not on conservation. I was working on women's health issues at the time, but through some friends and colleagues had the opportunity to meet and learn from some amazing wilderness and land conservation leaders while I was living and working there, and also some remarkable grassroots organizers, as well as volunteer leaders, particularly those that stick out to me the most are some Alaska Native leaders from who are Gwich'in, who were fighting to protect then, as they still are literally today, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. And that really left an impression on me. Um, The work I was doing at the time was really focused on defending funding for basic health services. And it became really clear to me that working on defense, when you win, you really just live to fight another day. And getting to know people working conservation, and particularly those volunteering their time to protect the places that were so central to them that that idea of working with communities and making enduring change really inspired me and is what led me to take a job and help start a small project for the Wilderness Society, working with grassroots groups around the West, as well as some places in the East, including my home state of Pennsylvania. And I've been lucky enough to be at the organization for a number of years and and take on different leadership roles throughout my tenure. Mm. So since 1935, the Wilderness Society's mission and passion has been to protect our nation's shared wildlands so that all Americans can enjoy the benefits that they provide. In the United States, we have things like wildlife refuges, national parks, state parks, forest reserves, BLM lands, and so forth. What do we need to know about how our wild spaces have been categorized differently in the eyes of our government and what that might mean for the levels of protection that they receive and our public access to them? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think I would start by acknowledging that what we call public lands today are the ancestral homelands of many Native American tribes. And with all U.S. settlement, were created through the displacement of millions of indigenous people. So in our work today at the Wilderness Society, in order to move forward, we feel like it's important to acknowledge that history. And, and we recognize indigenous communities for their continued stewardship of these lands, honor their sovereignty, and are committed to working closely with them for just and equitable solutions on these lands. But your question is is an interesting one. Our public lands and waters do make up a number of places many people would recognize, the Grand Canyon and Yosemite. But our public lands are about a third of the U.S. landmass. They amount to 30%. It's over 630 million acres. And while about a third of those lands are protected as parks, wilderness areas, national monuments, the I think little known fact is that just because they're public lands doesn't mean that they're protected and that in fact resource extraction, particularly oil and gas drilling and coal are 
one of the dominant uses of our public lands today. And that is one of the big challenges that we face, but also one of the really big opportunities that the Wilderness Society is really excited to be embracing. We have less than 10 years to stop the worst impacts of climate change and avoid irreversible losses of wildlife and face the possible extinction of up to a million species globally. But our public lands really offer solutions to both of those big issues. And if we could think about managing those lands for their conservation and climate and community benefits and not for the benefit of oil and gas companies and corporations, we could really make a huge impact on those big problems that we face, not only in the U.S., but obviously globally. I I do feel like there's been a common misconception. I personally had this myself that public lands equal protected lands. So I think a lot of people think about public lands like beautiful national parks and things like that, that are fully protected. But I guess that is not the reality. And I remember when I studied environmental studies at university, we learn about things like the Taylor Grazing Act and Mm -hmm. the mining laws. So all these other uses for our public lands the regulations around them really have been outdated. So what I learned was that the costs for people to graze their animals on public lands or to mine or log from public lands, the cost of doing that hasn't really changed with inflation. So basically, it's quite cheap for them to be able to do that. I don't know if you're able to share some more insights on that. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And I mean, some of those laws, the mining laws from 1872 and hasn't been updated since. They're also, the federal government subsidizes the oil and gas industry. So they operate below market rates to drill and mine for oil, gas, and coal on public lands at the expense of taxpayers and to the detriment of communities who are on the front lines and most impacted by the pollution from that kind of energy development, as well as those that those communities that are most impacted by the effects of climate change that we're seeing more and more in our daily lives. So the multiple the common phrases of multiple use, our lands are for, public lands are for multiple use. And in fact, what I think we need to envision in the future is thinking about public lands being managed for their conservation and climate benefits and not for the quote unquote multiple use benefits. If we're really going to put these lands to work for the benefit of all people and to help be part of the solution to those big existential threats that we face. Just a couple of statistics that always blows me away, actually, when I talk about this, the public lands actually account for more than 20%, actually nearly a quarter of the U.S. climate emissions that comes from oil, gas, and coal extracted from public lands. And to say that 
another way, you know, public lands were their own country, they would rank as the fifth largest source of carbon emissions in the world. Wow. Um, I did not know that. I know. It's remarkable. And I think most people don't know that. That's ahead of countries like Japan, Brazil, and Germany, just to give you some examples. And that's also why public lands are are managed by the government. We have the power to change how they're managed and why they could be turned around into what is currently under this administration, one of the primary engines for unregulated climate pollution, and instead could be a critical part in the U.S. helping to meet its global commitments to reduce emissions and address the climate crisis. Well, you've personally been with the Wilderness Society since 1999, and throughout your tenure, your team has permanently protected more than 10 million acres of public lands. So first, just a huge thank you for your team's hard work. And second, can you walk us briefly through this process, as in how do you go from deciding which vulnerable wild spaces to prioritize in seeking protection for, and then to actually gaining legal designations for their conservation? How does that all work? Sure. You know, it really starts working on the ground with local communities and working to come together with people from all backgrounds. You know, not everyone comes to the table to talk about conservation because they love wilderness. Their local economy may really depend on public lands. They may have cultural and historic ties to places. They may really enjoy recreating on public lands. So we don't assume that we know what people value about public lands, but really start by having a conversation to understand where where there are shared values and and what people care about and how they want to see the lands close to them managed for, for themselves, but also with an eye toward future generations. We certainly bring, we're lucky to have a great science team that has done some remarkable research looking at what lands may be most important to develop a resilient, connected network of landscapes in this country that would help both wildlife and um, human communities be able to survive and thrive in the face of climate change. So we have a science-based approach to the areas that we're looking to prioritize. But again, we don't come in assuming we know the best way to protect them. You know, really start with those conversations on the ground. And then we're able to build local support, work with local elected officials, eventually work with federal level decision makers to pass legislation in many cases to add protected areas to things like the National Wilderness Preservation System or our conservation lands that are found on lands managed by the Bureau of Land Management and include many of our big and small national monuments that are so important, both from a natural and historical and cultural perspective. So ultimately, the work we do in in many cases requires 
national policy change. So we build campaigns and work with those decision makers. But it's really grounded in starting from that finding those common values around place and developing shared solutions with communities for how those lands would be managed and and then working together to advance those protections and, and other management prescriptions with the elected leaders who ultimately have the say in, in how the how our public lands are managed. So that's kind of a, a snapshot, but there's a whole host of tools we can use. Wilderness is just a small percentage. And I think in the face of climate change, really thinking more creatively and also thinking about how private lands and state and local parks and other open spaces are really part of that bigger network. Public lands are really only a piece of the solution. Now, since you have to work collaboratively with government agencies and national policy, how much do you think it matters what the political climate is like and who is in power? And how much does that affect what you're able to do? So with a pro-extraction administration, are we kind of screwed or (laughs) are there (laughs) ways that we can work around that? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, let me answer that in, in two ways. Let me first talk about the challenges of this administration, because it absolutely matters who our elected leaders are when it comes to these issues. And we are finding that we're finding ways to make progress on the ground despite a fairly dreadful political climate that we're working in. So, I gave you the statistics on the role public lands play in climate emissions. So just to bring that to the current administration, the Trump administration has offered a total of of 461 million acres of our public lands and waters to development for oil and gas. That's an area bigger than the state of Alaska. And we just released a recent report that found that those lands and waters leased by the industry in the last three years could produce as much as 5.9 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent to more than half of the annual emissions of China. So that is the agenda of this administration. They are advancing a reckless energy, fossil fuel energy dominant agenda. And the impact of that is displacing wildlife, increasing pollution, and probably most importantly, endangering the public health of communities on the ground. Trump is proving to be the worst president for the environment, really in our history. And just candidly, We were prepared for this to be a challenging couple of years, but they have exceeded our expectations and how bad they are and just undermining bedrock conservation laws and policies and rolling back, removing decades of conservation protections. So they've done things like take the unprecedented action of slashing the size 
of landscape scale national monuments in Utah, the Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante monuments. They're proposing to lift the ban on uranium development near the Grand Canyon. They're actively working to open the old growth forest in Alaska's Tongass National Forest to logging and mining at a time when we know that our forests are one of the things that we need to keep intact if we're going to really make an impact on climate change. And the Tongass in Alaska is in the southeast part of the state. It's a it's a rainforest. It's America's rainforest. And one of the biggest carbon storing forests in the country. So it matters. The agenda of this administration is completely the antithesis of uh, climate and conservation, emphasis of our public lands. And despite that, we're seeing some opportunities and reasons to be hopeful. First, Their agenda is so blatant and so in opposition to what communities want from all walks of life that it's galvanizing people to take action and really building a conservation movement that is much more inclusive and flexing its power to defend against these attacks and really take that love of place and what motivates people to stand up to protect places and communities to really combat the agenda that this administration's putting forward. But at the same time, we've seen some, some remarkable successes despite the political climate. And those have really come in the form of longstanding efforts where there's been deep investment, both on the ground for a number of years and nationally, and bringing together bipartisan groups of lawmakers. For example, last year, we, along with a whole host of coalition partners, regionally and nationally, were successful in making the Land and Water Conservation Fund permanent in a package of legislation that also included several million acres of of land protection um, that was signed into law by President Trump because it had such wide-ranging and bipartisan support. So that's an example of something we're able to con- to actually succeed on at the national level. But I'd say the places where we're most hopeful and seeing the most progress are really on the ground. As I was saying earlier, sort of the secret to success is when we equitably and meaningfully engage local communities and then combine that with national support. So for just to give you two examples, we brought together farmers and local business owners, recreation outfitters, you know, and a host of others to protect about 340,000 acres of wildlife, including the salmon-rich headwaters of Washington's Metau Valley from an industrial-scale mine. In Montana, we're working with the Confederated Salish Kootenai tribes to address climate change and supporting their work and vision 
to build their first ever climate strategic plan, really forward looking. And we feel privileged to be working with them and bringing scientific expertise to the plan. It also includes replanting thousands of sacred white bark pine trees and funding training programs for high school and Salish Kootenai College forestry students. So really that ground up deep investment is where we're seeing progress and I think have reasons to be hopeful moving forward. You mentioned the importance of engaging people from regional, indigenous, native, and First Nations communities in this work. I'm curious, what have those collaborations specifically enabled you to learn throughout this process and achieve? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would very humbly say that we are still learning as an organization how to really authentically work with Indigenous peoples and and Native American communities and being very intentional in our work of being clear whose lands we're talking about from the very beginning. And as I said, not presuming that we know the best way to manage those lands. So really engaging from the beginning. I think a couple of things that we've learned is when Native American communities come together, the power that they have on determining the fate of of public man management can be really impactful. So one example is the establishment of the Bears Ears National Monument in Utah, where a something called the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition was formed and included multiple tribes from the Navajo to the Hopi and a number of others. And that they created their vision for what that monument should look like. And we were there really to support that effort as best we could, but they really were the leaders of that effort. So I think we've learned to listen, not presume that we know the answers really ask a lot of questions and really just make sure that our tribal partners are at the table from the beginning. I would say another example is our ongoing work to defend the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska, which is critical sacred ground to the Gwich'in people. They refer to the coastal plain as in, in English as the sacred place where life begins. And I think we've, again, learned the power of listening, of ensuring that that they are part of developing solutions, but also finding ways where we can contribute to, to help spread that that important story, never to speak for them, but to really where we can lift that up and make more people aware. So if I can share just one more example of, of sort of what we, something we did in that vein that I think was really different and inspiring just last year was we developed an installation that Nearly 10,000 people in three different cities uh, were able to go to. It was a multimedia, multi-sensory immersive experience, and we called it the Arctic Experience. And it was something that we 
partnered with the Gwich'in and a number of other entities on. And that really allowed people to see and smell and experience the Arctic Refuge as they walk through multiple rooms and they had an opportunity at the end to actually take action and do something to object to the possibility of drilling for oil in the refuge. And we saw a huge success with nearly 20,000 advocacy actions. But it was really a way to bring that story and bring that experience to more people who will never travel all the way to the, the north slope of Alaska and something we could do in, in partnership and in support of those Native communities. Well, we're at a time when people seem to be pretty divided, at least through the lens of politics. And I know that it's been important to the Wilderness Society to bring together unexpected allies for conservation and to also work on how people look at nature. So in this crucial time, where do you encourage people find the common grounds here in terms of why no matter our differences, we should come together and support the protection of our wildlands? I think that really that power of place and starting with what are our shared values and why do individuals and communities, regardless of, of their backgrounds, care about the places around them? I think that is that has to be the starting point. I also think at this time... The threats of climate change are real. The threat of extinction is so dramatic. And for us to come together, not not because it's the right thing to do, although I obviously firmly believe it, it's my life's mm-hmm. my life's work, but the impacts of climate change and species loss on human communities is so dramatic that I think, that increasingly helping people understand that it's it's not just the right thing to do, but it's essential to our very existence and that we can't think of people and communities as separate from nature, that they're really so integrally connected. And I think we're increasingly seeing why that is. You know, we have to have a healthy functioning planet if we're going to have healthy functioning communities. So coming together around that self-preservation, I think, is, is a key part of it as well. And then before we close off and go into our final five fire round questions, what suggestions do you have for us as individuals? So what can we do to best support your work at the Wilderness Society and also just the conservation of our wild wildlands more generally? For me, the advice I would have or the request is for for people to not be afraid to be active in their communities. And there's so many ways to get involved. And I think change really does start at the local level. So whether that is writing a letter to your editor about to your local paper about an important environmental issue close to home or being willing to write a letter or, or even better yet, call your member of Congress or go visit your 
county commissioners or other local elected officials. There's so much we can do at so many levels. I mean, our work is is largely at the federal level, but it is predicated on people acting locally. And I think, as I said, at this time when there's so much at risk, galvanizing people and taking that step of picking up the phone or writing a letter on an issue that matters to you and saying you oppose things like drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or you want to see more funding for the parks in your community, whatever that is that motivates you actually lifting up your voice and and being willing to take that step with elected leaders at all levels is the most important thing from my perspective. What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I was recently introduced to conservation optimism on Twitter, and I'm following it now. And it really lifts up success stories from around the world. So when there's lots of reason to be pessimistic, the hard truths of climate change and politics and Mm -hmm. all of it, it's a nice anecdote to end my day. Absolutely. And this is kind of related, but what do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I tell myself that I have to keep going for my daughter and to do that even on the days when I feel anything but optimistic that I'm really privileged to work for positive change and and that I just have to get out of bed and keep going. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Besides getting outdoors, which I do regularly, I am meditating to stay focused and positive. What are you and the Wilderness Society working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Well, personally, I stopped eating beef and I'm working on reducing my family's plastic consumption. Organizationally, we just adopted a new strategic framework to really focus us on at the Wilderness Society tackling this biggest challenge of climate change and the short time we have to work on it, but really envisioning our public lands as such a key solution and really trying to lift that up and share that story of how much positive change we could make if we change the way we manage our public lands. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? Well, I have to say my daughter and the movement of young people around the world who are standing up and making their voices heard and not taking no for an answer. I mean, what could be more hopeful than that? 
Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Melissa's work at the Wilderness Society, you can head to www.wilderness.org and be sure to also follow them on Instagram at Wilderness Society, on Twitter at Wilderness, Facebook at The Wilderness Society, and on LinkedIn at The-Wilderness-Society. Melissa, thank you so much for all that you do and for joining us today on the podcast. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Thanks again so much for having me, Kamea. And I would say there's really no substitute for the power of people and communities coming together around shared values and shared solutions. In fact, I think it's the only thing that I've ever seen make truly enduring change. Look.